Arboria. But the podcast, my name is Vivian Gabor, and I'm so excited, y'all. You have no idea. I have the great honor of getting to sit down with the first elected drag queen in U.S. history. Everyone, give it up for maybe a girl. Hello. Hello. (laughs) How's it going? So great. So great. Um, How are you? I'm good. It's it's a beautiful day. It's time to podcast and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> it's a beautiful day in LA and uh, here we are. We are. I mean, we may as well just get down, get down to it. I mean, first off, I haven't seen you in literal years. Years. Because <laughs> I did your show, I think it was during DragCon in what, 20... 17 2018 yeah it had to be 17 or 18 oh my god so long ago (laughs) (laughs) i almost feel like we shouldn't count 2020 towards like anything except for like political (laughs) movements yes but we'll get to that but like in terms of like living and in terms of like having moved through time i feel like we should just forget it because it makes everything (laughs) so long ago um but it's so exciting i have to say when you were elected um i like got so excited i got so excited not only for you but also just for all of us what was that experience like it was you know um the whole thing was just so interesting um when i decided to run for a local office um i didn't even know that there were no drag performers that had ever been elected to public office and I didn't find out until after I won and uh, there were a couple of articles that came out and you know one of the articles was like oh um, first drag queen to be elected to public office in California and then I thought about it I was like well yes California but then I was like has there ever been a drag queen elected anywhere in the U.S. (laughs) and the answer was no Um, you know there have been a few that have run um, but to be the first one elected to public office was so cool, but also so disappointing because I was like, how could I really be the first one in, it was 2019 then. I was like, in 2019, how could I be the first one? You know? Yeah. What is the process of running for political office? Like, I feel like we all kind of have these ideas and notions of what it is, but I have honestly no clue. You know, it's, it varies depending on what you're running for. Um, you know, running for a local position in some ways is easier and some ways harder than running for, for higher office. Um, you know, when you're running for a local position, one of the more difficult elements of it is just getting people to go out and vote because people are much less likely to vote in local elections than they are in federal elections, which is so interesting and, and backwards to me because, you know, local politics is where you're most affected and where you can see the most change happen. Um, You know, the things that are happening in your daily life are probably much more connected to your local politicians than they are your federal politicians. Um, So, but when I ran that first time, you know, I had no idea if anybody would vote for me. Um, So I was shocked and excited when I got the most votes, which was really cool. So I I ran for the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council, um, which is in Los Angeles. And in LA, we have, um, for our municipal government, it's essentially such that there's one mayor, there's 15 city council districts, and then there's 99 neighborhood council districts. Mm -hmm. And the neighborhood councils are, uh, we're not Uh, We're not a legislative body, so we don't write laws. Um, We're an advisory body. So we advise city council on how they should act or how they shouldn't act. So 
we do a number of things um, in that realm, such as um, you know we commit we submit community impact statements. So let's say city council is voting on something that we really <clears throat> want to see go through. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then we'll send in a, a community impact of support. They're you know voting on something that we really don't want to see go through. You know the opposite. We'll send in you know a community impact statement in opposition. Um, so anyways, so uh, it was super cool that I won and I actually just won my re-election. So I guess I'm also the first person to be re-elected to public office. <laughs> <laughs> um, my second time running, you know, I, I feel like it was just a little bit easier because I knew a little bit more of what to expect, how to engage with people, how to get people to go out and vote. Um, but, you know, running for a neighborhood council totally different than running for Congress. Um, the actual process for running for neighborhood council, um, fairly simple, honestly. Um, you know, you pretty much have to fill out a few forms with the city clerk and then and then it's up to you to go out and, and spread the word and, you know, engage with people and actually get them to go out and vote. Um, one of the, I guess you could say good things I guess it depends on how you look at, but one of the different things about running for a local position versus running for federal um, is that we weren't um, bound by the FEC, the Federal Elections Committee, mm -hmm. in terms of, of fundraising. So there's no fundraising limits, but I think that's in place because I I haven't seen any neighborhood council elections where, you know, there's like <laughs> mass corruption or like anything like that. Um, running for federal office, a little bit different. Um, you yeah. have to, it's it, it's a number of steps and they're not necessarily in order. Like you'll have to do one thing and then go over and do this thing and then, you know, go to the, this office. Um, but basically you have to file with the, the federal government uh, and the federal elections committee. And then you also have to file um, through your um, your county offices. So I basically had to file paperwork for the county, for the state, <clears throat> and for um, federal in order to run for Congress. Okay. Um, not, it wasn't exactly difficult. It, it was more so just very bureaucratic. It's like, it's like spending a week at the DMV, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that does not sound fun. <laughs> no, not the fun part about running. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so being um, an out drag queen, and you also, correct me if I'm wrong, you identify as non-binary, correct? Yes. Um, so I identify as a trans person, trans non-binary, um, which, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the, I ended up getting a lot of press about, you know, winning as a mm -hmm. drag queen. And, you know, it was almost to my chagrin in the sense that, yes, I am a drag queen, but that's what I do. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I am a trans person. And so I wish there would be more emphasis on, you know, being a trans person in office rather than being a drag queen in office, you know, because I think just even that idea, a drag queen in, in public office, I think people, you know, I think people just think I'm there to, you know, to perform and to put on a show. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so was, did you find a lot of um, pushback within your community because of that? Or did you find... Because I feel like a lot of us who don't live in LA feel like, or think of LA as being this progressive liberal kind of haven, um, which my eyes have kind of been open to a lot of what's actually going on through you because I've been following your stories and following your posts and things, but. Um, yeah, you know, and that's the thing is there's so many progressive people in LA, but I think the term progressive has been thrown around too easily. Um, for me as a progressive, I identify as a leftist. Um, so my, <clears throat> my policies are very much to the left, especially in comparison to um, the incumbent that I'm running against, Adam Schiff, um, who is a corporate, moderate, middle of the road Democrat. Very little difference between a corporate, moderate Democrat and a, a moderate Republican. You know, the mm -hmm. line is so fine, it's sometimes indiscernible. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think that we need more progressive representation in Los Angeles, because I think there are so many progressive people here. And if not LA to elect a progressive into Congress, you know, where, where? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I, you know, part of the reason that I'm running for higher office is because I think there's so many policies that I want to see be put into place 
that people have been talking about for years and that are criticized as being, you know, fantasy, you know, things like Medicare for all in the Green New Deal. And, you know, it's so interesting that they're characterized as being, you know, fantasy when these are things that are actually in place in other nations across the world, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, it's as someone who travels a lot, it's always so confusing to me how I guess behind the times this country is in terms of enacting policies that that help the people as a whole like are we we grow up in America being told that we're such a forward country that we are so far and above ahead of every other country on the planet we're so indoctrinated with that idea that when I started traveling and realizing and even honestly watching TV, realizing that other countries are so far ahead on healthcare and education and things like that. And even like I grew up being told that Mexico was this third world country and that we had to go and help them all the time. And then suddenly you you watch a TV show about Mexico City and you their subways are the most efficient and cleanest in the world and their government is actually doing all this for the people. And people were escaping to Mexico during the COVID crisis because they were handling it so much better. And it's, it's so crazy to me that we're still in this mindset of we're the best country. Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of that is just ingrained in people when they're in school and, you know, just the way that we learn about America and the way that we learn about the rest of the world, it's so American centric and it's mm. so, it's done in exactly how you said is, you know, we're taught that America is the best country in the world and that, you know, we're do-gooders and we, and we help people. And, you know, they don't teach you about how we're bombing other countries and we're bullying <laughs> other countries and, and bullying our own people, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so awful that, that we don't have a lot of the things that we very easily could have and that could very easily help so many people. Yeah. What got you interested in running for public office? Because I've considered it, but then there's always that like, oh, but then I'd actually have to do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, I, I'm sure a lot of people think about doing it, <laughs> but actually doing it is a different story altogether. <clears throat> it's a commitment, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, once you start, you can't really stop. Um, mm. So for me, I have, I've always been interested in politics and in civics and, you know, this idea of wanting to change things for the better. Um, you know, I'm an optimist and there's a lot of things that I want to see happen that truthfully will be difficult, but I don't think are impossible. But for me, I, I actually, I, I, I attempted to run for mayor of Chicago um, back wow. in, I think it was like 2011. I was in my early 20s and <clears throat> I decided to run because Chicago had a family dynasty of mayors for decades. Um, uh, Richard Daly and his father um, were in office for, for decades. And so I was surprised when Mayor Daly announced that he was uh, stepping down and not seeking re-election. Um, I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to be the first gay mayor <laughs> uh, in Chicago. And uh, I actually attempted to get on the ballot, uh, but I did not get enough signatures to get on the ballot. So mm. I kind of put that dream to rest for a while. And then it's interesting how I ended up running for the neighborhood councils here. I actually was unaware of the neighborhood council system until I saw an ad on Facebook <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, maybe I should run for neighborhood council. And this was in 2017. And I ended up missing the filing deadline by just like a few weeks. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do this next time in 2019. And um, yeah, filled out the paperwork. And I was like, all right, I guess we're doing this. And it has been one of the most fulfilling things that I've ever done in my life. Um, and I will say it's not for everybody. Of the 21 people that were on my neighborhood council this term, only six of us sought re-election. Um, because it is a grueling job in some ways, um, especially because um, it's unpaid. So we're all volunteers and you put a lot of time and energy into it. And so it's, it's basically like having another part-time to full-time job 
but you're not getting paid. So you still also have to go and have a, a full-time job elsewhere. And, you know, for that reason is, um, because of that reason, there are the people that are on neighborhood councils, a lot of them are older wealthy homeowners who might not need to work. And they end up representing the needs uh, of wealthy older homeowners, uh, which yeah. is again not reflective of most of the people that live in Los Angeles who are renters. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of went off on a tangent. I forgot what the question even was. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I think um, just how you how you got started, like what what really drove you to be where you are. So yeah, so it's um, after winning and after you know having my first term, I've enjoyed it so much, and I was like, I can't wait to run again and do this again. As I said, it's difficult. Um, there's a lot to do. You end up being a punching bag for for the neighbors, but ultimately, it's really fulfilling. Um, if you put the work in. And that's the thing is being in public office, it's one of those things where you don't have a boss. So it's not like you have like someone being like, oh, I need this paper by this time. It's, it's kind of like you, you do the work or you don't. Um, and it's been a joy and an honor to be able to do the work and, you know, to have been reelected. And, you know, ultimately I decided to run for Congress because I was so inspired that, that people would vote for somebody like me. Um, you know, I did decide to run under my drag persona. My legal name, believe it or not, is not maybe a girl. <laughs> um, but when I was running, they they let you put whatever name you want on the ballot. So I, you know, you file under your legal name, but then there's a section where it's like name as you want it to appear on the ballot. Um, so I was so excited that that happened. I was like, you know, why not, you know, run for higher office? Um, and here we are. It's definitely the type of job that you really have to want to do, regardless of the situations. I mean, the closest I've ever gotten, I, backing up, I my dad is a judge for the state of Washington, um, but he's not like a federal judge. He's not an elected judge. So I've only like heard things from like a distance. I've heard things like third or fourth hand. Um, and he was he was often asked to run for office um, while I was growing up and he always said no and I was like dad do it run for they want you to run you would get elected and he was like but that I would have to deal with those people all the time I don't want to play that yep. game yep um, it's kind of like that that line from Parks and Rec where Ron is talking to Leslie and he's like don't take a thankless job if you're expecting to get thanked like <laughs> exactly. exactly and you know that's one of the one of the really hard parts about being um an elected official is you literally cannot please everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard for somebody like me. I am a people pleaser. I like to make people happy. So, you know, but when you're firm in your positions and your policies, they're not always going to make other people happy. And you spend a lot of time defending your value system, um, which I think is ultimately important, you know, to have that sort of that sort of discourse. But it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> I think tagging onto that though and backing up in in your um what you were saying a little bit about running for mayor of chicago when you were 21 i think something that isn't advertised very well and isn't really taught in schools is the the age restrictions on so many public office um positions are much lower than we think they are like you can totally, you totally. can run for many positions starting at 18. I think there are even some places where it's younger than that for local positions. But actually here in Los Angeles, um, the neighborhood council system, you can be 16 and that's um, amazing and run for office, which I think is so cool. You know, I think that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, even with, you know, with uh, Congress to be in the U.S. House of Representatives, you have to be 25. Um, mm-hmm. However, it's very, very rare that you see anybody in their 20s being elected. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, when you when you think about, you know, what does a politician look like? Um, you know, we often have this idea that it's these older, wealthy, w- white, cis, heteronormative men. Yeah. And and I, I think that for a lot of people that is intimidating and, and it's like, well, 
can I do something like that? And the answer is yes, you absolutely can and you should. But you know, with AOC getting elected, she was the youngest yeah. person to be elected to the to the US House. And I forget how old she was when she got elected, but I think she was like 28 or 29. Something like that, yeah. So you can, even though you can't be as young as 25, there has not, there hasn't been a 25 year old um, congressperson. Which is disappointing to me, honestly. I feel like we are in a place, especially right now in, in our history, we're in a place where we need some of those younger voices. Um, Absolutely. And at the state and local levels, we need those 18 year olds holding the 60 and 70 year olds in check. Like we need, we need them them being able to learn from those people, but also the the older people who have been in office for a long time need to have younger people. We need to have newer blood in there so that there's this exchange of ideas because you can't exchange ideas as well unless you have representation and young people don't have representation because I think largely they don't know they can. Exactly. And you know, I've, I've been really inspired by the youth lately because I feel like I'm seeing so many more young people get involved in many different ways, um, politically and socially, um, whether it be through activism um, or running for office. Um, you know, actually just last week at our Silver Lake Neighborhood Council meeting, we voted to um, establish the um, Youth Committee. Um, so there is an organization of <clears throat> high schoolers uh, in Silver Lake, and they created what is known as the Youth Silver Lake Neighborhood Council. And they have their own meetings, and they talk about the issues and all these things. And so we voted to sort of legitimize them as an extension of the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council, which I, I think that. is so cool that there's these young people who are in high school who want to, you know, be involved in, mm -hmm. in and be a part of the changes that they want to see. And, you know, I think it's why we don't see more of that, I think is just because, I don't know, when you're, I say this as I'm getting older, I'm like, I'm going to turn <laughs> here. You're just a little more carefree and a little more floating through life at that age and like figuring things out. And I think it takes a certain level of awareness and, and maturity to, mm -hmm to sort of, you know, want to engage in that kind of work, um, yeah, which, absolutely. Um, which I'm so happy to see that we're seeing more of that. Mm -hmm. I wish I had known when I was in high school, I wish I had known about things like youth councils, because um, I know they have some, they have some organizations like that in Washington, because I grew up in Seattle. Um, and or things like model UN or things like that, where I've always been interested in politics, but I didn't know that I could be involved in them when I was younger. And then when I was in college, I didn't know about it. And then when I was in grad school, I didn't know about it. And I didn't find out honestly, till AOC was elected, I started doing some research just because I was like, wait, she's really young. How old do you have to be? Mm -hmm. And there's a list and you can literally be governors of states some states at 18 like it's yeah it's insane and i wish we talked about that more and i wish we allowed um young people to have their opinions and be able to research their opinions and teach them how to question things and and grow in that way so that they were more prepared for that kind of a thing absolutely and you know i think one of the other things about that is i think that politics and um, like government relations, I think it's one of the few areas where it's almost frowned upon to be a young person. And I think that experience is overvalued. Um, you know, one of the things just even in my own running that, you know, I've heard over and over is like, oh, you know, does she have experience? It's like experience, experience, experience. And one of the things that bothers me about that is the fact that there are tons of people in office right now who have plenty of experience, but where has that gotten us? Nowhere, it's just, it perpetuates the status quo. Yeah, well, or and that experience that they have is experience of being able to sit in a seat and talk to lobbyists for years and years and years and yep. years, not living experience. They're not living with the rest of society trying to figure things out. They're living in their own mansion away from their state oftentimes Yep, just exactly. Their own ideas. There's such a disconnect between, you know, representing your constituents 
as you know somebody who is not like their constituents yeah. and that's why i would love to see more people who are you know quote unquote regular people running for office because regular people have a better understanding of what regular people need in terms yeah. of the needs of their local state and federal governments you know and that's what that's who those bodies are supposed to be serving and yeah. you know with that disconnect it's like how do we make that happen well i remember growing up I was, people were so proud of one of our, I believe she was one of our representatives because she would come back to Washington state once a year to, to see how things were going. And I was like, once a year, that's it. Like, that's so she, weird. So, so she's in Washington for maybe a week and knows exactly what we need. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, what? And we're so proud of that. <laughs> that's so bizarre. Yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of uh, reps, end up just moving to Washington, you have to maintain, I think it varies state by state. It might not though, but I believe that you just have to maintain a home in the state that you represent. It doesn't even need to be in the district that you represent. And you don't, that, that's so weird to me that you don't have to yeah. live in the district that you, that you are representing. So like for instance, I'm running for California District 28, which is um, the Hollywood area. And that's where I live. But theoretically, if I wanted to, I could run for Congress in San Francisco. Isn't that weird? That's very strange. Especially for a state like California or like Texas or, or the larger states, like just living somewhere in the state and being a representative for somewhere else in the state makes no sense whatsoever. Sense. The culture is completely different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, and I mean, not to keep bringing her up, but I think that was one thing where I started getting excited with AOC was because when she was elected, I was living in New York um, and people were like, oh yeah, she came into Sephora today while I was working and she did this and oh yeah, she's still living here. And like, it was strangely such a big deal that it was, she was still living in her old neighborhood and people tried to tear her down and be like, oh, she couldn't afford to live in DC. And it's like, well, first off, that's a problem. Second off, it's also a problem that you are expected to not live with the people you're representing. Third, let's just not go there. <laughs> That's so weird to me. Um, no, I love AOC too. She's getting a lot of um, flack right now. Um, <clears throat> but again, it's like I said earlier, you cannot please everybody. Um, yeah. But AOC- Nor should you have to. Like yeah, if you're yeah, exactly. representing a small group of people, the small group of people are the only people that should, whose opinions should matter. Like who cares what the talking heads on TV are t saying about you? Exactly. You Like you should be accountable to your constituents. Um, but yes, yeah, she was actually one of my inspirations for wanting to run for Congress. Um, you know, I was so inspired by her story. I had just won my local election and I was like, let's do this. Mm -hmm. um, and in my first race, we actually, one of the things that gags me the most about my, <clears throat> my first congressional run, um, you know, we lost by, we lost the primary election by less than 1%, only 1,114 votes, which is so cool, so tragically close. Yeah. Uh, but we ended up getting more than 22,000 votes. I got more votes than AOC got when she was elected to Congress. Like that, for some mm -hmm. reason that gags me just because she's like one of my heroes. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, I, the, the only way I can relate to that and this isn't impressive in any way, shape, or form, but I ran for student body president in college and narrowly missed getting to the general election because I think I was like, albeit I went to a very small school. It was 2,800 students when I graduated, but I missed by like 30 votes or something like uh -oh. that getting on the ballot. And so I could relate in that like feeling of like, that was great, but uh. <laughs> so, like, uh, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> why didn't I bake cookies? Like, exactly. <laughs> have done something. <laughs> um, so for a break from political talk, um, did you grow up in California? I don't think I know much about that background. I did not. I actually I was born in Pittsburgh in 1986. Um, I lived there until I was nine. That's where most of my family roots are. Um, so like my grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, all live in Pittsburgh. We moved to Chicago when I was nine. 
um, for uh, my mom had a job transfer and I moved to LA when I was 27. Okay. So I've only been here about going on eight years. Okay. What was the, what was the reason for that move? Have you been to Chicago in the middle of the year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Honestly, that was totally a- fair. And it's so funny because when I first moved here, um, people were like, oh, what, you know, why'd you move to LA? And I like was so embarrassed that I didn't have this like inspiring, like, oh, I came out here to act or to do music. It was, I moved out here for the weather. <laughs> yeah. But there's no shame in that. Um, you know, Chicago winters are brutal. They're, they last half the year. Mm-hmm. And I just love the climate here. And Obviously, I found something to do uh, here in in California, um, but yeah, I just love this city. I love this state, um, and I plan to stay here for a while. I honestly, I love that answer. I feel like so many people feel like they have to come up with some like deep reason for moving, and oftentimes it's just I just needed something different. Exactly, you know, and that's totally okay. I was also kind of at this point, you know, I was 27. And I was kind of like, if I'm going to move somewhere else, it needs to happen soon. Otherwise, I'm just going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to experience living in a different place. And I had no idea how much I was going to end up liking Los Angeles. My best friend moved out here the year before I did. And so I took a number of trips and I was like, I just need to move here. Yeah. So, um, but I love California. I love Los Angeles. It's definitely home now. And I plan to be here for a while. Did you, so did you go to college in Chicago then or? Yeah, I went to, uh, I went to Loyola in Chicago. Um, I did not graduate. Um, but when I moved to LA, that was one of the things that I thought about picking up again. And I actually took courses at Santa Monica College for a couple of years. Um, I wanted to finish my bachelor's degree, but I was having so much trouble with figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, I'm interested in so many different things that it's hard for me to pick, you know, what do I want to get a degree in that I want to, you know, work in for the rest of my life. And this was right around when I started doing drag and my mom actually kind of made me have an aha moment. I was visiting for Thanksgiving and um, I was like, mom, I was like, I don't know what I should major in. Should I major in history? Should I major in art, in art history, in design? Like there were so many different things I wanted to do. And she, she finally was like, do you think that maybe school is getting in the way of what you actually want to do, which was, um, you know, drag and entertaining. And it was kind of just this moment for me where I've, I felt a sense of relief because, you know, I think one of the things that is pounded into us in our primary education is that you must go to college if you want to, you know, have any measure of success. And while I don't want to downplay um, college and higher education whatsoever, I don't think that that's necessarily true that you have to go to college to to be able to, to make a success of yourself, you know? Oh, yeah. I was actually just having this conversation with my roommate yesterday about how how bachelor's degrees have gotten basically to the point where like high school diplomas were 10, 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. where they're so ubiquitous that they don't really mean anything on a resume anymore. Exactly. Um, And even master's degrees, like coming from someone who has a master's degree, I love academia. I want to get another master's degree. I want to get a doctorate. Even master's degrees don't guarantee a blessed thing, especially like mine's in music. I can't do anything with it until I get a doctorate. It's, Mm -hmm. but so many people now are starting to go to grad school because bachelor's degrees mean almost nothing. And then master's degrees are kind of getting to that point where it's like, okay, well, if everyone has one, then it's, where everyone's going to have to start getting doctoral degrees. Exactly. Everyone's going to be a doctor in 10 years. Well, it's so crazy to me because college shouldn't be that necessary for everything. It's not necessary. It's if you want to be an academic, absolutely. You should go to college, but you have to feel that like urge to be an academic. Um, But even then college is mostly just 
for figuring out something that you like and maybe making some connections. Totally. <laughs> and right and now, wasting thousands of dollars. <laughs> exactly what I was going to say is, you know, there's the economic barriers to, mm. to being able to be able to go to college and to finish college uh, is just not attainable for everybody, you know. Yeah it's expensive to go to school. And then on top of it, you still have your, the rest of your life that you have to pay for, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, that was actually part of the reason that, or actually the primary reason that I ended up uh, leaving Loyola um, after only a year, my, my parents were divorced that year and um, it ended up being a huge economic burden. And so I had to, I had to st stop school and I had to get a full-time job to be able to, to survive. And I don't think that that should be a barrier for me to go on and do what I want to do. I mean, obviously if I yeah. want to be, you know, a physician or something like yeah. that, obviously <laughs> I understand that, yes, you absolutely need schooling for that. But the, you know, requirements that so many jobs have for, you know, a bachelor's degree or higher, I think are mm -hmm. just really unfair, which by the way, I'm for free public college for everyone so oh throw yeah. that out there. <laughs> <laughs> i i still haven't figured out why even public universities are so expensive anymore because i remember and this we're talking god 2008 was my freshman year um even back then like i looked at the university of washington because it was close to where i lived and as an in-state student, I was still going to have to pay like 15000 15 to 18000 a year to go That's to school. That's more than some people make in a That's whole year. Crazy. You know? Yeah. That's why I was like, you know what? If I'm going to take out loads, I'm going to go to a private school. I'm going to take out a lot of loads because it's all going to be the same eventually. Like, I mean, imagine this. Imagine, imagine how... Um, how many people would benefit if if public college was available at no cost to people? And people mm -hmm. make it seem like, oh, who's gonna pay for that? Well, it's like, yo, we're already paying for, you know, free K through 12 for everyone and it's a requirement. You know, why can't we, you know, make the next yeah. step free for everybody as well? I think it's kind of foolish to force people into 12 years of schooling and then, and then, for many people not allow them to go on to that next step oftentimes due to economic barriers well and on top of that expecting them to still do it exactly and expecting <laughs> them to still do it <laughs> well and i that's that's one thing and i wanted to get to this this conversation anyway so that was a great segue good job us um <laughs> it, that's one thing where when we start talking about defunding the police the i don't think people realize a how big their budget is mm -hmm. but also beyond that if we were to reallocate some of those funds to education how much education we could fund with just a small percentage of the police budget absolutely 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 i mean i really you you hit it on the on the head when you said i don't think people realize how much money everybody gives to police um, mm -hmm. on so many different levels, whether it be, you know, locally in your town or on a state level, federal level, it's just so much money. Um, in LA, we, you know, half the budget goes to police and that just makes no sense to me. No sense whatsoever. And I saw it written down somewhere. And so I, I tested it myself, just did the math myself we hear the words million billion trillion and we're just like oh it's just it's like right in a row because a million is just like comes right after a certain number of thousands but then you sit down and do the math and like a million seconds is a little over two years a billion seconds is over 1200 years like wow a billion like, dollars a billion dollars is so much money it's like it's so interesting like you could never count your money if you have that much money yeah ever <laughs> never ever so you take even a portion of that and fund something else with it you could do so much more with it 
or talking at the federal level, the military gets several billion dollars a year. And by several, I mean like tens of billions almost, of dollars. Almost almost a trillion dollars a year. Um, I think this year was $753 billion. And it's like, think of all the other things we could do. We could send people to college. We could give people free healthcare. We could start changing our, our environmental system so that, you know, we could start moving away from fossil fuels. There's we so could many- fix the prison systems. We could do literally everything. Like we look at other, we look at other countries, like we look at Northern Europe and see it as this like beautiful place where everyone's taken care of and countries will send like care packages to new mothers and, and mothers and fathers are given time off when they have children. and all of these kinds of things that we're like, oh, we could never do that. We don't have enough money for that. And then we go and look at our budget and we're like, oh wait, we do have plenty of money for that. We just are spending it on killing people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's it's so fucked. <sighs> Sorry, am I allowed to use that word on this program? Absolutely. <laughs> Especially in this situation. It's really mind blowing. And that's, you know, all of this on top of the fact that the money that they are receiving is totally being misallocated and used to perpetuate a system that is ultimately harmful to, you know, black and indigenous and people of color or people. It's, it's really messed up. And I, was it, I believe, so I saw this article, I think it was in LA, maybe you posted it. I don't remember where they just um, built a, uh, a bunch of tiny homes for the homeless and it's already thriving and I think it was in LA and people are like wow you mean it was like just that easy like <laughs> wow imagine that <laughs> all you had to do was build like 12 houses and everyone's happy and healthy and thriving and what <laughs> you know and that's the other thing oh I'm so oh can we talk about housing for a second yes let's please <laughs> I am so, that's been one of my passions that I've been trying to be really engaged with in both my, <clears throat> my local position and in my, you know, my, my run for Congress is, is helping the unhoused people, people experiencing mm-hmm. homelessness. And I'm so bothered because people, so many people have this incorrect and this false idea that all people experiencing homelessness are just are criminals and drug addicts and it's so so false I mean especially living in a city like LA it's so expensive um you know people just can't afford housing um you know part of the reason that I am still living in Silver Lake right now is because of um you know my rent control like if I didn't live in the build I let me put it this way. I couldn't afford to move elsewhere in my neighborhood right now. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. And yeah. I'm not the only person in that situation. So many people are, you know, just a hair away from, from being in a situation where they're unhoused. And it's, it's a huge problem in LA. It's a huge problem in many parts of the, of the nation, especially in big cities. And the thing is, we, we have the money to help people. We have the money to create housing, to, um, you know, have services in place, but we're just not doing it. And I don't, I'm trying to wrap my head around why not. Um, You know, right now in LA, there's, you know, homelessness is, it's skyrocketing. Every single year, there's a a double digit increase in the number of people who are unhoused. There's 60,000 people in LA who are unhoused. And, that's, in my opinion, I think an underestimate um, because you don't see everybody who is unhoused. You know, mm-hmm. you, you think of people who are, you know, living on the streets, but then there's people who are living in their cars. There's people who are couch surfing or staying with friends or family, not necessarily because they want to, but because they don't have other options or choices. Yeah. And the city of LA right now is so hyper-focused on on temporary solutions to sort of to basically make it seem like they're helping and in ta- tackling the problem but they're not what they're doing is they're just pushing it over here and then once it gets to be a problem over here then they push it over there and and that's the thing there's you know i don't know if you heard but a few weeks ago last month uh, echo park lake was closed because um 
they said they needed to do park renovations. But really what it was to do was to kick out all of the people experiencing homelessness. And the city patted themselves on the back because they were saying, oh, well, we got all of these people into Project Room Key, which is the temporary hotel housing that we that was created during the pandemic. And so, you know, people were praising this action. But the thing is, it's 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 really not it's it's a very, very temporary solution. When this program expires in just a few months, mm -hmm. you know, where are these people going to go then? You know, that's why we need permanent supportive housing and permanent supportive services, not just temporary shelters, um, because there's a time limit on all of those things. And if you're not helping people to tackle the, you know, the reasons that they became unhoused, then it's just going to perpetuate. Yeah. And it's going to be more expensive. Well, it's also just a, an indicator of not only our country's refusal to provide housing, it's also an indicator of our country's refusal to provide health care, because a lot of people find themselves unhoused because they can't hold down a job because they can't get correct um, mental health care, they can't get correct health care in general. Um, or like we were just talking about how a lot of jobs are requiring college degrees, you can't afford to get a college degree, then how do you get a job? I mean, not to not to go back to that but i mean i have a master's and i'm currently unemployed because getting a job is so difficult nowadays um and so then imagine it, trying to get a job when you're unhoused and yeah exactly and know? don't necessarily have proper id and you don't have a passport which you generally have to have in order to because you have to have multiple forms of id you don't have a birth certificate laying around you don't have these things that are necessary in our current society in order to quote unquote succeed. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of addressing those issues, we're addressing these kind of cosmetic like, okay, we'll, we'll give them space to have a tent city over here. Isn't that nice of us? <laughs> you know, and then, and then six months later when the, you know, when it's deemed to be some sort of hazard, then again, they just go and they, they, kick all these people out. And not only are they kicking them out, but they're oftentimes incriminating them. They're criminalizing them for being poor. People are being cited and arrested and taken to jail. Mm -hmm. And I just can't, again, another one of those things I can't wrap my head around is why we criminalize poor people. Yeah. Well, and it, that was a big issue here. I mean, it's always a big issue here in New York, but it came to the forefront, um, I think late 2019, when New York raised their raised the subway fees from $2.50 to $2.75. And we were all just like, okay, but hear us out. Public transportation should be available to the public. <laughs> we shouldn't be paying for this anymore. Like this should just be free. And people were like going around, like smashing the card readers and like opening doors, letting people through and, um, some of that culture is still. Paying, we already are paying yeah. for transportation. Like who? Do, who? Like how do? How do people think? Um, you know, the metro is funded. It's funded by taxpayers. So, but then we also have to pay to ride. It yeah. just makes no sense. And once again, people who. I shouldn't say all people, but many people who take public transportation, especially in LA. You know, LA. A lot of people have cars here. But a lot of people do take public transportation. But when you think about who needs to take public transportation due to economic reasons, mm -hmm. that is, again, going to be a barrier to people. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I oh, I commend you on your willingness to, <laughs> to take on these issues because I don't even know where I would start. You know, I think a lot of it is just public awareness and getting people to understand that not everything is as it appears. And, you know, even with what I was just talking about with the clearing out of Echo Park Lake and how people um, were praising it because people were being put into this, into these temporary hotel housing situations. I've had so many people say to me, oh, you don't want people in housing? And I'm like, that is the furthest thing from the truth you could ever say. What I don't want is people to have to be in this kind of 
restrictive housing where you can only leave at certain hours, you can't have guests, you can only bring two bags of belongings and you can't have a pet. Like that's not humane. And so they're on house arrest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I want people to have permanent supportive housing and I want people to have, you know, public transportation. I want people to be able to have college, healthcare. You know, these are not far-fetched ideas. Well, and especially when you bring up the whole um, you're not allowed to have pets in those situations. A lot of pe unhoused people have pets because that's their only stable yep. relationship that they can have in that situation. And so if you say, okay, you can have this housing, but I'm sorry, you're going to have to get rid of your pet. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, exactly. You can and live here, but you can't have your child. <laughs> I And that's what I challenge housed people to ask themselves is, would you want to be in a situation like yeah. that? No. You know, would you want to give up your beloved pet or, you know, your significant other or any of these other, you know, things that we all take for granted? Um, mm -hmm. And as you were mentioning earlier, like, you know, to get a job, you need to have your ID and you need to have certain documents. and you know, when you're an unhoused person um, living in a tent in LA, you know, if your documents are in there and the city does one of their sweeps, you're really fucked. Yep. And the sweeps that they do here in LA, they're, uh, the name of it is such a misnomer. It's called CARE Plus. It's an acronym, um, which I can't remember the full uh, wording right now, but it's like it's like a comprehensive sweep. And so what they do is they will go and they will totally clear out these encampments and literally take away people experiencing homelessness's entire lives. Um, you know, they end up losing their documentation, they end up losing their medication, and oftentimes it's just in the name of cleaning up an area so that it looks good for homeowners. Yeah. You know? The Yeah. And I mean, one thing I never really thought about growing up was how great of a privilege it was to have parents who were able to have a safety deposit box to hold things like birth certificates and stuff like that to make sure that they were always safe. Because you have to have a bank account. Often safety deposit boxes are extra money that you mm -hmm. have to pay monthly. Um, so if you're taking away someone's place to live, you're often taking away their only possible safe place to keep stuff like that. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's so frustrating. And, you know, I always also want to remind people that, you know, when you see an, enc an encampment, <clears throat> that's not, that in and of itself is not the problem. It's the mm -hmm. symptom of the problem, which is, again, skyrocketing rents, um, lack of affordable housing, lack of permanent supportive housing, and lack of services, which again could all be paid for if we defunded the police and the military. Literally just a, like one to five percent defunding of those things would fund all of these things for years. Like, <laughs> blows the mind. Um, but kind of let's let's do a little bit of an upswing before before we end. What are some of your what are some of your plans? What are some of your hopes for the rest of your term um, at, on the neighborhood council, and then also for your current campaign? Yeah. So um, you know, as I as I mentioned, I just got reelected to my second term, and I'm so excited because. Uh, our, our terms are two years. And personally, I don't really think that's a long enough time to really get into something and make the changes that you want to see. Um, I think, and the same goes for Congress, um, the terms for the US House of Representatives, it's, it's two years, which the unfortunate thing for constituents is that many Congress people end up spending most of their time um, on their reelection campaigns because they happen every two years. And, you know, when you're running a, a campaign on that scale, you have to start at least a year, year and a half out. So what does that mean? You work for the first six months and then the, the next year and a half, you're just trying to get yourself reelected. It doesn't make sense. Um, anyways, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just throwing out all these. <laughs> um, but on, on my neighborhood council, um, you know, some of the things that I'm looking forward to um, you know, and especially with this past year being in, in quarantine, it, it thwarted a lot of our ideas and plans that we had. Um, and a lot of it was just adapting to 
you know, these new conditions. And now that we are hopefully on our way out of it, um, I'm excited about a lot of different things. Um, so one of the things that, you know, one of my big focuses is obviously LGBTQ issues. Um, and one of the things that I'm most proud about in my first term was that I, I founded the LGBTQIA committee for our neighborhood council. And when I did that, I was informed that it was the first queer focused committee out of the entire 99 neighborhood council system, which again, that kind of like blew my mind. Um, and then from that, we ended up forming the LGBTQ plus alliance, which uh, it's an alliance of all 99 neighborhood councils. So it's sort of a central um, queer focused alliance. Um, so I'm super proud of that. We've had that up and running for a little bit more than a year now. Um, and I was just actually elected to co-chair of the Alliance. So doing a lot of queer focused things um, and just making this a safer place for, for all people is something that, you know, I wanna be doing. Um, you know, currently right now, we, we just, as I mentioned, we just passed the youth, uh, youth committee and we recently passed a few letters um, condemning the um, what I was telling you about when Echo Park Lake was cleared out. Um, so really, just being being a better advocate um, for people who sometimes can't even advocate for themselves. Um, and then with our campaign for Congress, um, we're really just getting started. I just announced uh, my my campaign back in February and. First couple of months, I was just kind of focused on, you know, getting reelected to my current position. So now I'll have a little bit more time to focus on the campaign. Also, I'm just like, where, where is all the time? I'm like, I don't know how I have time. <laughs> <to keep on. laughs> um, but yeah, we this time around, my first run for Congress uh, was fantastic, but it's such a learning process that you know it was just learn as you go. Mm -hmm. The fact that we same came so close and now we're running again, um, it's just exciting because we we know a lot of these things now. We know what to expect. We know how to, you know, do some of the processes. Um, our volunteer team um, is already three times the size that it was at the end of our first campaign, which is awesome. Um, we're doing a lot more focusing on fundraising and phone banking, which honestly is my least favorite part about running. I hate asking people for money. And, mm -hmm. you know, even though it's for a good cause, I just like, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I will say one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is getting back to canvassing and just going door to door and talking to voters. That was actually the thing that I was least looking forward to in my first campaign. But the thing that I ended up loving the most about campaigning was actually getting out and talking to people and finding out what, what's important to people. Why, why do you, you know, what do you vote for? What, what sort of improvements would you like to see in your daily life that can be provided by, you know, your local, your state or your federal government? And, you know, we all have issues that are near and dear to us that we're passionate about. But it's also very important to recognize that there are a lot of different issues that are very important to other people and figuring out what those things are and how you can help them in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, do you know of maybe a couple re uh, resources off the top of your head for anyone listening who might want to get involved in politics or just kind of where to start that journey? You know, I wish that I, I did, but I don't really. Um, I feel like for anybody that's listening who is interested, you're welcome to reach out to me and I can help you. Because um, I know that a, a big part of just getting into it is just figuring it all out. And ultimately, as even though it's not very fun, it's not that difficult if you just follow the steps. Um, so most governments will have you know, instructions about how to run if you want to run for office, whether that be your city or your state or for, for federal office. And they'll often have like a list of deadlines that you have to meet. So for instance, you know, there's a deadline for submitting our signatures to get on the ballot. There's a deadline for, um, you know, filing with the federal elections committee. There's a deadline for all these different things. And again, it can be hard to navigate, but they're it's all written down somewhere if you just look for it. Mm. 
and and are willing to do the digging on government websites. <laughs> um, where can people find you personally online? They can find me on Instagram at maybe a girl. That's M A E B E A G I R L, or on Twitter maybe underscore a underscore girl, um, or visit our website, which is maybeagirlforcongress.org. Um, we're also looking for more volunteers. If anybody listening wants to help out our campaign. Um, we have volunteers that are local here in LA, but we also have volunteers all across the nation um, that can help out with things virtually. So um, we'd love to have you. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much for taking time out of your day to sit down with me. It was so nice to catch up with you again. It really was. It was so great chatting with you. I feel like yeah, we've been well. talking for like an hour. It didn't even feel like that. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, and well. uh, we will see you all later. Yeah, Bye. Yeah, but. Thank you yeah, for listening but. to Yeah, But with Vivian Gabor. Tune in next week. Same place, same time. Yeah, but. Yeah, but.